We're getting close to the conclusion of our current sermon series, which is Once Upon a Time, Ancient Stories, Ageless Truths. And that's what this series has been about. It's been about ancient stories, events that took place between two and 3,000 years ago, but that still have relevant truths for us today. But these stories still speak to us, and uh, I must say they speak quite loudly. And today we are going to read a story about Jehu, the king of Israel. And you might think, oh, that's probably his favorite Bible character. Not really. I wish I could say that Jehu was my favorite Bible character. But uh, he had a lot, of good, uh, a lot of good characteristics. But there are some things there at the end that unfortunately were not so good. And, and we can learn from those as well. But you know, over the years... I can always tell, you know, whenever I meet someone and introduce myself to that person, I can always tell if they know the story of Jehu in the Bible. Because if they do, they almost always make a statement or they ask a question about my driving. In fact, I remember the very first time this happened, I I think I was in junior high, and I introduced myself to a, a missionary that was visiting our church. She and her husband were missionaries, and they were visiting our church, and when I told her my name, she immediately asked me, oh, do you drive like Jehu? Like, no, I don't drive yet. But I, I mean, I understood what she was saying. Uh, that's happened many times over the years. Either they ask, do you drive like Jehu? Or they say, I hope you don't drive like Jehu. In fact, I discovered several years ago that there, there was a band at one time from San Diego, California, because there was a San Diego in Texas, but San Diego, California, there was a band whose name was, are you ready for this? The name of the band was Drive Like Jehu. That was the name of the band. They're not together anymore, but their music lives on. I, I listened to some of it this week. Uh, I went to their website, and I, I, from time to time, I'll, I'll go to their website. From time to time, I'll, I'll, I'll visit their Wikipedia page, and I did this week again. And uh, their, their page, Wikipedia page, says that the name of the band, for those who don't know this, the name of the band was derived from the biblical story of Jehu and the book of Kings. And I read some, uh, I read some reviews of their music, and I got a big kick out of one review that said this. They sound like they've been dipped in battery acid, wired to a power station, and let loose, let absolutely loose, screaming, nervous riffs piled on top of each other and taking off for Mars. So that not only tells you a little bit about their music, but it tells you a little bit of, about what kind of driver Jehu was in the Bible. Uh, you know that saying, if you can't play good, play loud. Next time you hear that, think of drive like Jehu. Because that's, I listened to their music, like I said, and I, I couldn't take very much of it. Uh, just a, a few seconds. But, and I haven't even told you what kind of chariot driver Jehu was. But like I said, that review of the band gives you an indication that it wasn't careful slow Sunday driving. And he was known for that. He was known for being that kind of driver. So apparently he did it enough and it, it, it gained a, a reputation for him. Well, if, you, if you've been tracking the stories with us in this series, we've learned that ancient Israel was originally one nation, but after the third king, King Solomon, the nation split into two. The northern kingdom was known as Israel. And the southern kingdom was known as what? Israel and? South Israel. Israel. (laughs) 
Israel and Judah, okay? So Israel and Judah. The capital of Israel was Samaria. The capital of Judah was Jerusalem. There were originally 12 tribes in Israel when it was one nation. After the split, 10 of the tribes became Israel. Two of the tribes became Judah, right? So we've got Israel, we've got Judah. I think some of you knew that. You were just afraid to speak out or speak up. Now, the nation that was immediately to the north of Israel, and I mention this because uh, this was, it's been in our story the past couple of weeks, but the nation immediately to the north of Israel was a nation by the name of Aram. Today we know it as Syria. And uh, we've seen in the past couple of sermons that Aram was often at war with Israel, and occasionally Judah would come and help Israel. Now most of the kings of the northern kingdom, uh, Israel or northern Israel, as Anthony would say, most of the kings of the northern kingdom were evil and corrupt kings. They led the nation into idolatry. They committed many terrible sins that were born out of their lust for power, and in some cases, just plain lust. They would commit terrible sins. In essence, they mocked God with their rebellious lives, and they thought they were getting away with it. But along came King Jehu and everything changed. Now to understand this story, we need to know the story of King Ahab. Uh, this king, one of the early kings of Israel, was one of the most wicked kings of Israel. He married a foreigner, a woman by the name of Jezebel. And we've talked about her, we talked about Ahab a few weeks ago, really probably a couple of months ago. And he married Jezebel, and Jezebel was a foreigner. She wasn't an an Israelite. But when she came into Israel, she brought with her the idolatry, the the worship of Baal, along with all the perversions that came along with the worship of, of Baal. She basically evangelized for Baal, and she persecuted the true prophets of God. She persecuted, she killed the prophets of Yahweh while she elevated her own uh, religion. Now, one particular story is very important for our text, and, and we dealt with this early in our series, and uh, it was uh, the story of a man named Naboth, an, an Israelite named Naboth, who had a vineyard right next to the palace of King Ahab in, in Jezreel. Now, remember that Samaria is the capital, but Jezreel was like a summer home. Uh, some people think it was a winter home. Anyway, it was, a, it was another palace that he, that he had. And so Ahab wanted a certain plot of land belonged to Naboth, and he wanted it for himself, and he offered to buy it. And Naboth said, no, I can't sell it. This was given to me by God. This was an inheritance of, of my father's, and God gave it to us. And because he wouldn't give it to him or sell it to him, then Ahab went back home. He was pouting. Jezebel says, why are you pouting? You're the king. You can do whatever you want. And she said, I'll take care of this. And so she basically had Naboth killed. She did have him killed. Uh, She had him stoned. And then uh, she told her husband Ahab, it's yours. You you can have it. So that's the way that she she dealt with with things. Uh, She was an evil woman. And so uh, after this happened, they enjoyed their new plot of land, their garden for a while. But then God sent a prophet by the name of Elijah. Elijah went to confront Ahab. And in this confrontation, Elijah promised Ahab that the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, dogs going to lick up your own blood. And that was fulfilled uh, not too far 
past that. But that wasn't the end. Elijah also promised that the whole house of Ahab, his whole house, not only would he be killed, but his whole house would be destroyed. And he promised judgment upon Jezebel. Elijah said upon Jezebel, he said, the dogs will eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Wow, that's, that's pretty strong. But nothing happened for 12 years. Nothing happened. She just went on doing her thing and the wicked kings came and they went and they did their thing. And now Ahab is gone. Like I said, he's dead, but his house is still reigning. And, but that comes to an end, as I said, in Second Kings chapter 9, where God raised up a new king by the name of Jehu. He became God's instrument of judgment and vengeance. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but let's, let's flash back now. Let's go back to um, when Elijah was confronting the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Remember when he had a contest with the false prophets of God? These prophets were Jezebel's prophets. He, she had brought them over. And so he had a contest with them. Because he told, Elijah told the people of Israel, How long will you waver between two opinions? If, if the Lord is God, serve Him. If Baal is God, serve Him. Make up your minds. And then they had this, this competition where Elijah said, Whoever calls fire down from heaven, he's the one true God. And the prophets of Baal, they tried, you know, they, they cut themselves, they prayed, they did all kinds of crazy things. No answer. Elijah said a simple prayer and God sent fire down from heaven. And then Elijah ordered that all those prophets be killed. They were killed. And then that really angered Jezebel. And Jezebel told Elijah, I'm going to get you. I'm going to kill you too. And Elijah went running and he became very depressed running from this wicked Jezebel. Well, when Elijah was running away from Jezebel because he thought she was going to kill him too, then God strengthened him and God says, look, you got to get up because I have another mission. And your mission is you need to go anoint Jehu, king of Israel, because he is, he, he's going to do my work of judgment. Now, it wasn't actually Elijah who, who anointed him. It was actually Elisha, the prophet that followed him. Remember that when Elijah was taken up to heaven, a double portion of his spirit fell on Elisha. So Elisha was really a continuation of the, of, of, of the work and the ministry of Elijah. So this is now the time of reckoning where God has, and now he's getting ready to appoint Jehu to clean house in Ahab's family for their wickedness. So let's go to 2 Kings 9, 1 through 10. We're going to read a lot of verses. Just uh, let's stay engaged and, and, uh, and, and follow along. 2 Kings 9, beginning with verse 1. The prophet Elisha summoned a man from the company of the prophets and said to him, Tuck your cloak into your belt, take this flask of olive oil with you, and go to Ramoth Gilead. When you get there, look for Jehu, son, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Go to him, get him away from his companions, and take him to an inner room. Then take the flask and pour the oil on his head and declare, This is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and run. Don't delay. The New Living Translation says, and run for your life. Don't delay. Verse 4. So the young prophet went to Ramoth Gilead. When he arrived, he found the army officers sitting together. I have a message for you, commander, he said. For which of us, asked Jehu. For you, commander, he replied. Jehu got up and went into the house. Then the prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head and declared, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, 
And I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, son of Ahijah. As for Jezebel, dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and no one will bury her. Then he opened the door and he ran. Wow. Quite an introduction to this character of Jehu who was a commander. He was a general, as it were, in the, in the army of Israel. So he worked for, for the king of Israel. And he was sitting there with all his uh, other uh, commanders, other uh, military men, army officers that were there. And when he came back into the room... Uh, back, back to where the rest of the men were, that is. They asked him what the young prophet wanted. And initially he said, oh, it was nothing. You know, these crazy men, you know. But and I think this is kind of funny because he comes back to where they were. In those days, they didn't anoint with oil the way we anoint people with oil. I, when I was praying with Sister Emma earlier this week, I anointed her with, anointed her with oil. And I just put a little bit on her forehead as a symbol of, of the Holy Spirit, as the Bible teaches us. And in those days, they would pour the oil over their head. So here comes Jehu back to the meeting of the army officers. He's got oil, you know, coming down all over his head and his body. And they ask him what happened. He says, oh, nothing. Like, okay, I'm sure they, I'm sure they know something happened. So they insisted, no, really, what happened? He finally told them that he had just been anointed king of Israel. And their, their answer surprises me a little bit, because look at verse 13. They quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and they shouted, Jehu is king. One of my favorite verses of the Bible. <laughs> Jehu is king. And immediately he had supporters, and not just any supporters, but he had leaders, leaders of men. He had generals. He had army officers. And maybe that explains why he immediately took action. He set out for Jezreel. He knew where the king of Israel, at this, at this time, the king of Israel was a man by the name of Joram. And Joram was in Jezreel. He had been injured in battle. He had gone to Jezreel to recuperate from his injuries. And Jehu knew that he was there because he was a commander. He was an army officer. He knew where the king was going to be at all times. So he, he, he would also have known that not just the king of Israel was there, but also the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. Ahaziah was also with Joram. So he takes off for Jezreel. And he and his man, and, and by this time he's got, a, he, he's got some men, he's got an army with him. So look at verse 17. They're, they're approaching Jezreel. When the lookout standing on, a on the tower in Jezreel saw Jehu's troops approaching, he called out, I see some troops coming. Get a horseman, Joram ordered. This is the king of Israel. Uh, send him to meet them and ask, do you come in peace? The horseman rode off to meet Jehu and said, this is what the king says, do you come in peace? What do you have to do with peace, Jehu replied. Fall in line or fall in behind me. Then the lookout reported, the messenger has reached him, but he isn't coming back. So the king sent out a second horseman. When he came to them, he said, this is what the king says. Do you come in peace? Jehu replied, what do you have to do with peace? Fall in behind me. The lookout reported, he has reached him, but he isn't coming back either. The driving is like that of Jehu, son of Nimshi. He drives like a maniac. There it is. I was listening to a, a sermon this week in my sermon prep that somebody else preached. Uh, 
uh, about this passage. I don't even know this person, but he said that his wife has been threatening, threatening to get him a license plate for his car that just simply says, Jehu. He drives like a maniac. And so they're recognizing him by his driving. And at this point, then King Joram and King Ahaziah decide they're going to go out and meet him. King Joram already sent out these two horsemen, and they didn't come back. They stayed with him. He convinced them to stay there. So now he says, I'm going to go myself. So they both go out. And remember that Jehu was Joram's uh, general. He trusted Jehu, the king trusted Jehu with his life. But he's about to find out that things have changed. And it just so happened that when he went out, Jehu's coming, the kings are, are meeting them. They, they meet at the exact place where the, the plot of land that had belonged to Naboth. Remember Naboth? They actually met right there in that plot of land where uh, Naboth had been killed that had belonged to Naboth. And then this happened, verse 22. When Joram saw Jehu, he asked, Have you come in peace, Jehu? How can there be peace, Jehu replied, as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound? Joram recognized something here. So verse 23 says that he turned around and he fled and he called out to Ahaziah, Treachery, Ahaziah. Then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow pierced his heart and he slumped down in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his chariot officer, pick him up and throw him on the field that belonged to Naboth the Jezreelite. Remember, remember how you and I were riding together in chariots behind Ahab, his father, when the Lord spoke this prophecy against him. Yesterday I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, and I will surely make you pay for it on this plot of ground, declares the Lord. Now then, Pick him up and throw him on that plot in accordance with the word of the Lord. Verse 27, when Ahaziah king of Judah saw what had happened, he fled up the road to Beth Hagan. Jehu chased him, shouting, kill him too. They wounded him in his chariot on the way up to Ger near Iblim, but he escaped to Megiddo and he died there. His servants took him by chariot to Jerusalem and buried him with his ancestors in his tomb in the city of David, i.e. Jerusalem. So he immediately begins to do what God had told him he had to do. But he's not finished yet because immediately after this, he goes into Jezreel now and he has one thing in mind and that is to kill the wicked queen Jezebel. So he's going in to see Jezebel. Now she was expecting him. She had to have known that he was coming because she did something rather strange. I don't really know the significance behind this. Uh, I've read theologians and scholars say, well, it might have been because of this, or maybe it was because of that, but nobody really knows. But what she did is, in preparation for Jehu arriving uh, to the palace, she put on eye makeup, and then she fixed up her hair, and then she looked out the window. And somebody, I read... Uh, some writing, somebody said, well, maybe she was thinking she was going to seduce him. Could be, I don't know. Another writer said, no. Uh, Another writer said, there's a belief that she wanted to seduce him. He said, but I doubt it because she was along in years and, you know, quite, didn't have quite the same effect. We don't know what she did, but I don't know what she was trying to accomplish. But whatever it was, 
It didn't work. She put on the makeup, fixed up her hair. She looks out the window. But then this happened, verse 32. Then he, Jehu, looked up at the window and called out, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him. Throw her down, Jehu said. So they threw her down, and some of her blood spattered the wall and the horses as they trampled her underfoot which was an exact fulfillment of the prophecy, or part of the fulfillment, the rest is still to come, of the prophecy that Elijah had made. And then it was Jehu's turn to do something unusual, because he just had her killed. He had her, her own servants who decided, you know what, I, I think I'm going to go to the other side. And they threw her down. She, she dies in this tragic, terrible way. And then Jehu decides it's time to eat. He goes inside to eat and drink. Like union break, you know. He must have been a union man. He went in to eat. And he's eating. And finally, he commands that Jezebel's body be buried. He sends his men to bury her body. But when they go outside, all they found was her skull, her feet, and her hands. The prophecy had been completely fulfilled. So they went back, verse 36, and told Jehu, who said, this is a word of the Lord that he spoke through his servant, Elijah the Tishbite. On the plot of ground of Jezreel, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's body will be like dung on the ground in the plot of Jezreel, so that no one will be able to say, this is Jezebel. Because there would be no more Jezebel. But Jehu's not finished yet. In the next chapter of this book, we read that He convinced the leaders of Samaria. Remember, Samaria is the capital city of Israel. He convinced the leaders of Samaria to kill the remaining 70 sons of the house of Ahab. So these are still descendants of Ahab. These are sons and grandsons. And so he convinced them in a very cunning way. He convinced them to kill them. Not only did he convince them to kill these 70 sons of Ahab, but he demanded that they bring him their heads. They were decapitated and they, they brought their heads to Jehu. told them, I want their heads within 24 hours, by this time tomorrow. And they were very obedient. They killed those men. These were leaders in Samaria. They killed the 70 sons of the house of Ahab and they brought him their heads. But he wasn't finished yet because next he took on the false prophets of Baal. Remember that Jezebel had introduced Baal worship to Israel. Not only that, but she had persecuted. She had killed God's prophets while she was promoting the the false worship of Baal. I talked to you just a while ago about that encounter uh, between Elijah and the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. So now this happens in uh, 2 Kings 10, beginning with verse 18. Jehu brought all the people together and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. Now, Summon all the prophets of Baal, all his servants, and all his priests. See that no one is missing, because I am going to hold a great sacrifice for Baal. Anyone who fails to come will no longer live. But Jehu was acting deceptively in order to destroy the servants of Baal. So he told them, if you don't come, you're going to be killed. What he didn't tell them was, if you come, you're going to be killed. Because many prophets of Baal did go. The Bible says that the temple of Baal, which Ahab had built, was full. It was crowded. And then 
uh, Jehu ordered that they all get robes. They had all these robes in order for them to sacrifice to their god Baal. And they offered their sacrifice. Jehu himself offered a sacrifice to appear to be worshiping with them. But then things turned for the prophets because then Jehu commanded 80 men he had, he had stationed outside the doors. He gave them this command in verse 25. As soon as Jehu had finished making the burnt offering, he ordered the guards and officers, go in and kill them. Let no one escape. So they cut them down with a sword. The guards and officers threw the bodies out and then entered the inner shrine of the temple of Baal. They brought the sacred stone out of the temple of Baal and burned it. They demolished the sacred stone of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal. And people have used it for a latrine to this day. Wow, can you believe that? So the next verse says, So Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. That's a story. I thought about announcing this week to you that this, this week's sermon was going to be rated R for violence. Because that's, it is pretty violent. But there's some lessons to be learned. And, and let me just quickly go over three things that I want us to, to take away from this story today. The first one is this. God will avenge every unconfessed and unrepentant act of rebellion and defiance. Especially those acts that deceive others and that lead them astray. Because we see a lot of evil in this world. And there's no doubt that it's getting worse. In other countries, Christians are forbidden from worshiping God and, and, and they're persecuted for, for doing so. They're tortured, they're killed for doing what we're doing here this morning. We're not persecuted for serving God here in this country, but let me tell you, there's no doubt in my mind that the groundwork for persecution is being laid right now for the future. The way that Christianity is being minimized in our culture, is being demonized, that's all part of Satan's plan to attack and destroy Christianity and, and Christians. And so there's groundwork being laid down right now. And in a few years, when our kids have grown up, if the Lord hasn't returned by then, who knows what kind of persecution they will face. Satan knows that if he can't get to God himself, he, he can get to God's people and maybe get to God that way. So we're caught in the middle of this cosmic battle. And sometimes I ask myself, and maybe you have too, why... Why doesn't God intervene? Why don't we see God destroying evil? Where is God when His name is, is being maligned? Where is God when God's people are being persecuted? Where is God when evil people do evil things, evil dictators in other countries and in our, in our culture where, where sin is celebrated and where righteousness is mocked? Where is God? Why doesn't God just... Break into history and, 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 and push back the dark forces of the, of the enemy. I mean, we long for God to, to enter this world and to just grab Satan by the tail and, you know, throw him down and cast him out. We don't see that, right? We, and, and some people want to take matters into their own hands. But here's what, here's what God says in Romans, uh, Romans 12, verse 19. He says, Do not take revenge, my friends. But leave room for God's wrath. Leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Wait a minute, wait a minute. 
You mean there's such a thing as God's wrath? I thought we were under grace. We are under grace, but that doesn't, that doesn't negate God's wrath against those in rebellion against him. There is such a thing as God's love and God's wrath. In fact, in, in this same book to the Romans, Paul uh, writes about the, the goodness and the severity of God. See, we've got to know both the goodness and the severity of God. We can't just say, oh, God is love and you know, God has a great plan for your life. He is love and He has a great plan for your life. But He also knows that a lot of people's uh, plan that God has for their lives is aborted because of evil, because of sin, because of things that uh, other people maybe have deceived them and have sent them on the wrong path. And, and uh, so there's room for God's wrath and we have to leave room for God's wrath. We'd, we're not the executors of God's wrath. We are not the avengers. The avenger is God. And he may use certain people, but he's not calling us to avenge. He says, do not take revenge. Do not take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. And God does repay. There is, uh, you know, the book of Revelation, uh, uh, a promise from God that God is going to avenge the blood of his servants who have been persecuted. Evil men may prosper on earth for for a short time, but God will have the last word. Jesus told his disciples in a parable, he said, let let the, the wheat and let the tares, let the wheat and the weeds, let them come up together. Everything will be sorted out at the end. We want to we, we wanna sort things out right now, but God will have the last word. Dogs may not consume modern day Jezebels every time, but their future judgment is certain. It's promised in scripture. God will avenge the blood of his persecuted people eventually and finally. The persecuted church does really exist, folks. Brothers and sisters all over the world are being kidnapped. They're being martyred. Some are burned alive. alive. Others are tortured for days, for weeks, for months. And God is aware of that. In Revelation chapter 6, we we, uh, read that uh, part of the revelation that John saw in heaven is that there are the souls of those who have been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful with their lives and in their testimony. And these martyrs call out to God and they say to God, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? Then God gives them each a white robe and they are told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus who were to be martyred, had joined them. So he tells them, I'm aware, just rest a little bit longer. By the end of, of Revelation, by chapter 19, toward the end, we see that God is avenging the blood of his servants who were martyred. So God knows his saints. He knows those, he knows those who kill them. Judgment is coming. It's a sure judge, judgment. It's a severe judgment. And it's for those who act and live in rebellion against God and defiance against God. God will take care of that. Here's another takeaway for us today. There will never be peace in our world and in our lives as long as we're following sinful paths. Because the king of Israel led Israel into idolatry. Remember when, when Jehu was going to, uh, to Jezreel and, and Joram met him 
And Joram asked him, are you coming in peace? Jehu's response is very enlightening here. He said, how can there be peace as long as the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound? See, there cannot be peace if we're following false gods in our lives. As long as we're following sinful paths. Sinful lives don't lend themselves to peaceful living. Sinful lives, you know, that's where you see all the, uh, in the families in which they're following a sinful lifestyle. They're living a sinful lifestyle. You see all the friction and the fighting and the anger. There can't be peace if we're following the false gods in our lives. If we're not following God wholeheartedly. Anything we look to for fulfillment, for enjoyment, for satisfaction apart from God is a false God. And there is no peace in a false God. And how can there be peace if we're ignoring God and following after worldly attractions? Because peace is not just the absence of conflict. Peace is the abundance of righteousness. So how can there be peace, Jehu said, as long as there's idolatry and witchcraft, as long as you're doing your own thing? There's never going to be peace until we follow God wholeheartedly. Then the third takeaway, how you finish your life matters to God. How you finish your life matters to God. And I would say it matters to your family too. Matters to your friends. Here's the sad news. Here's the sad news. We read 2 Kings 10, 28. So Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. But verse 29 says, However, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit the worship of the golden calves, at Bethel and Dan. So he destroyed Baal worship, but he still fell to idol worship. The, the golden calves, just a very quick reminder, the golden calves at Bethel and, and Dan. When the kingdom of Israel split into two, the king of Israel didn't want his people to go down to the southern kingdom, to go down to Judah to worship. They were commanded by Moses' law that they were to go to Jerusalem to worship in Jerusalem. But he said, I don't want my people to go down to the southern kingdom. They may like it there. They may stay there. So what he did is he built two golden calves in in Israel. One to the north and one to the south of of northern kingdom. One at Bethel, one at Dan. And he told his people, you don't have to go all the way down here. These are your gods that brought you out of Egypt. Just go to Bethel or Dan. Don't go down to way down to Jerusalem. And so he led them into idol worship. And he told them, these are your gods. And those are the gods that Jehu began to worship. He, he wasn't taken in by the false worship outside of, of Israel. that came from outside of Israel, the, the worship of Baal. But it's the one inside of Israel that got him. The thing that he was anointed to do is what took him down. He was commanded by God to put a stop to idolatry, specifically Baal worship. But it was the worship of other gods that eventually did trip him up in the end. It makes me think about how prone we are to judge sins in the lives of other people while we fail to see these same sins in our own lives. Jesus addressed this, didn't he? When he said, why do you, why do you uh, try to take out the speck in your brother's eye and you can't see the big old log in your own eye? You know, Jesus had a sense of humor. You can't see the big old log coming out of your own eye. We're prone to judging sins in other people and we don't see the same sins in our lives. In fact, I believe that the areas in which we consider ourselves to be the strongest 
are the areas in which Satan will attack, attack us the fiercest. That's why Paul wrote, So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. If you think you're standing firm, in other words, if there's pride, and the pride many, often, many times or oftentimes is, is expressed through criticism. When we de- develop a spirit of criticism, where we criticize other people for what they did or didn't do and how they did things, and, oh, I can't believe he's doing that, and why doesn't he move, why doesn't he do that, and why did he do this or that? That spirit of pride that, that is manifested in criticism is what Paul is saying. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. There is, and I'll finish with this story. There is a, a pastor, and I don't know this man at all. I just I know his name, and he was a part of a Facebook group of ministers that I'm a part of. And these are uh, AG ministers, or somebody's God ministers. And I did notice, though, that he was often just very critical, very judgmental. I mean, he, he criticized churches that don't have Sunday night service. You churches don't have Sunday night service. You know, you're disobeying God. And he criticized people who use the NIV version, which I like to preach from the NIV. He calls it the nearly inspired version. And he was just very critical of people who did church differently from the way he did. Wow, you know, so it, I, I saw that. And, it, you know, it bothered me. But I thought, well, I, I don't know who this guy is. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, he was, uh, in fact, he was one of the... Uh, administrators of this Facebook group. Well, I started seeing in this group, people were asking for prayer for him, prayer for, pray for a brother so-and-so. You know, he's from another state, by the way, another state. And so I thought, I wonder what happened. But nobody would say. Somebody even asked, well, what happened? Nobody would answer, just pray for him, pray for him. After a few days of seeing that, I thought, well, I wonder what happened. So I just Googled his name, coming to find out he pastored a large church, large church, coming to find out he had been arrested for using methamphetamines. There was a, a mugshot uh, picture, and uh, I felt so bad when I saw that. I felt bad for him. You know, I felt bad for his family, for his church. I threw his church into, as you can imagine, turmoil. I mean, it was just in his city, probably all over the state, and with, with the, you know, the Internet now, just all over the world. There's his mugshot, been arrested for using meth. And uh, I thought, my word. And I, and I thought about this verse. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Because we're prone to ju- judge sins in the lives of others that we don't see in our own lives. So Jehu didn't finish well. He destroyed Baal worship, but he didn't turn away from the worship of the golden calves. I don't want that to be said about me. You know what I, you know what I, I, I go to often in my mind, and I, I want this to be said about me. Not that I was perfect, because I'm far from perfect. But I want to say, like Paul told Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So how you finish matters to God. It's not a matter of just starting great, but it's a matter of finishing strong. It matters to God. It matters to your family. And it matters to your friends too. So God is in control of this world. He will avenge the evil. He will avenge the wrong. Our part is to follow God fully. Because there will never be peace in our world and in our lives. As long as we're following a sinful path. And follow this path to the end. Finish strong. Finish strong. Because this matters to God. 
It matters to our family, and it matters to our friends. 